Coming up next, the spookening reads The King of Horror. Hello, everybody. Hello, boils and ghouls. Welcome to The Spookening. It's your humble and obedient ghost, joined by the mauler who's a baller of spooks, Brandon Chest Fiend, right there. There I am. And Dracula. uh, You want to introduce old Mence Killer himself? Well, I think you just did it. He is the Mence Killer himself. Mm Mm-hmm. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't mince words. He said he kills them. Right. He minces mince killers. He does yeah. mince flesh. If anybody wondered where that came from, that's what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, His it, name is Jacob Kyle Mincel. He's it, the pastor's master of bleeding. bleeding. Yeah. I got it. One of the, it is. the scariest things you can do with your blood. <laughs> Arguably the scariest thing you can do with your blood is bleed. Bleed. Well, we're not here to bleed. Nope. We're here to read. We are. And so we'll just be reading. We done read. I'm here to talk about reading. You want to talk about reading? Rainbow. You want to squawk like a raven about reading, about bleeding? No. Nevermore. Nevermore. All right. We won't do it anymore. The podcast is canceled. <clears throat> Good. <laughs> wow. I hurt my feelings, surprisingly. Folks, we are finally talking about Stephen King. I think there's a really early episode where me and Jake talk a little bit about Stephen King. I forget what mm-hmm. the pretext was. It's We just had a little fun, and we talked about Handmaiden's Tale. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Stephen King and maybe one thing, because we like to work in Rules of Three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Handmaid's Tale, you, you can date us, because the Handmaid's Tale, the thing with the show with the Elizabeth Moss and the, the hats and everything had just become a, a thing. So yeah. it was... Topical at the time mm-hmm. is no longer topical. Although I believe that show is still on the air, but doesn't seem to have the cultural cachet. It, it, I don't that think that one really cares about it anymore. That burned. That one burned bright and burned quick. Like yeah. some shows maintain their relevancy a lot long. Like Stranger Things, nobody really cared about season four, season five, whatever it was, but they kind of cared. As <laughs> hit my hit my feed. The people who cared cared. Yeah, uh, well, it's, pe- a, it's one of those shows that has its audience, and they're the ones who care. Well, the people who scared. 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 It hit big enough that Masterclass was like, let's talk about TV writing with the Duffer Brothers. Oh, no. Are the Duffer Brothers doing a Masterclass? Yeah. Everybody's doing a Masterclass. I know. We're doing a Masterclass on podcasting. (laughs) Yes, we we are. Every episode is a Masterclass on podcasting. (sighs) Listen, folks. Yep. We-'re talking about Steve-O, the The Kivo. The Kivo. (laughs) Steve-O, the Kingo. (laughs) He's getting chemo. No, he's not. He's still very much with us, even though he's in his seventies. Very prolific gentleman. Hey, you know what? Just one for... of the more prolific gentlemen. Yeah, one of the more prolific gentlemen across all fields, across all. I mean, how many books has he written? Uh, I don't have that number, <clears throat> but I will put it into Google. How many books has Stephen King? And why did that phrase "I mean" become a clarifying statement? I don't know because I, mean... I I didn't mean. How many books has he written? I want to know how many books he's written. He has written 64 novels and over 200 short stories. He's released 11 collections of short stories. He has written five nonfiction books, and he has written 16 just categorized here under other. Nice. And once you've written that many books, the odds are that some of them are going to be good. Right. And the odds are some of them are going to be absolute garbage. Yeah. 
Whoa. And I think that holds up, right? I, I think King would cop to both. I, I think it might actually be fun to go a little bit out of order here. <clears> so <throat> look what's circling around. You can hear it in stereo. Isn't that fun? Have you noticed this? that it's in mm-hmm. stereo? Yeah. It always has been, but we don't We didn't used to get to hear it in real time. You just want compliments or what? Good job, Nathan. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. You're welcome. Yes. I was fishing, <laughs> really oh. sophisticated fishing for compliments there. <clears throat> Are you, it's almost like you're the fisher king. Mm-hmm. Stephen King. Is Ooh. also named King, which is a little bit like the Fisher mm. King. It's taking us a while to get anywhere, almost like we're walking a mile. Mm-hmm. The green, a green mile. Yeah, all the way to death, a horrible flaming death. Yeah, where you're like the terrible <coughs> death of Edward Delacroix or whatever that guy's yep. name was. Delacroix. Delacroix. Or his flesh was falling off and all that stuff at the end. That was no good. Yep. Not not the way to go. Not the way to go. Yep. This this book has a couple ways not to go. And Stephen King's pretty famous for his not ways to go that he conceives. Probably his most infamous one is a story about a guy who lands on an island and doesn't have anything to eat. And he's a surgeon. So he takes little pieces off of himself and slowly eats himself. To death. To death. Stephen That's King. a metaphor. Yeah, some kind of metaphor, metaphor for something. Metaphor come life. Yeah. We're all leading ourselves to death, aren't we? Well, the baggage plane went by, so I thought it'd be fun actually to start with the little Stephen King baggage. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing we all have it one way or another. I mean, <clears> he's, I sure he's, do. he's a household name. He's ubiquitous. He's Even if you never read him at all, you ha- got to have a take on him probably or something. So Brandon, what's your Stephen King baggage? My Stephen King baggage is I actually didn't read. This is, this is the one and only Stephen King book I've ever read. And so I read this in undergrad, as an undergrad, and liked it. Mm-hmm. Because I had at that point this idea that Stephen King was just a bad writer. Yeah, no. And then uh, you can use him a lot of things, but you really can't accuse him of being a bad writer. What made me begin to change my mind was I think it was my mother in law pointed out to me that he had a book on writing. Mm-hmm. And she said it was good. I didn't believe it at first, but then I went and read some of it and it actually was really good. Yeah. And I liked this guy's voice. And he, it was, I was kind of growing out of my pretentious stage. And so I read The Green Mile and really enjoyed it. Not enough to go and read any of his other stuff, but I did really enjoy it. My actual baggage like before that was that my dad was a horror fan when I was a young boy. And so I knew some of Stephen King's stories because I would hear them in the background, like when I was a little boy going to sleep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was scaring me sometimes seeing the book covers and things like that in the house. Mm -hmm. And I think the first Stephen King movie I saw was that TV miniseries about the, like the retelling of Roanoke Island in the modern Yeah, that one's creepy. Yeah, Storm of the Century. Storm of the Century, yeah. yeah. So that's the first Stephen King, but then other than, then other Stephen King movies after that. And so it was really cinematically, I think the first time I actually was shocked to find out who the story was by was the Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. when I found out it was actually a Stephen King story. I was like, oh man. So that might be the time when I was actually starting to come around to thinking maybe Stephen King was better than I had given him credit for was through the movies because Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, when did this movie come out? Late 90s? Yeah, early I was 2000? 2000, 2001, something. <clears throat> yeah, so when we were all in high school still. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was you had the Shawshank and then you had Green Mile and these were both... Then everybody's always surprised to find out he wrote Stand By Me. The, yeah, the, but the legitimately good movies. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, maybe this guy really doesn't know how to tell a story. And turns out he does. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. my baggage with Stephen King. Jake, same question. Shawshank and Stand By Me. That's really it. That and the distaste for 
adult horror that the sort of R.L. Stein trajectory led me down. Fear Street and all that, yeah, that crap. Yep, that's really that's really it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that was part of it for me too. Is R.L. Stein kind of made me think? Oh, that folks, <clears throat> we're getting a coffee dill. Yeah, but hey. we just ignore women. Dill right? dill dil diary. No, a diary is just something you write in. Thank you. There's no Halloween pun for, for delivery. fulfilling your purpose. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for fulfilling your purpose, honey. My wife just brought us. Actually, really, thank you. That was, that was all. That was all a joke, people. I'm not. Oh, sorry, I didn't order you any, Jake. But yeah. I'll, I will I now get coffee. Get Jake some coffee. Okay. Where were we? Yeah, the R.L. Stein. My cousins they read R.L. Stein. I did too. When I was like at their house and wanted to read something, I wasn't mm, supposed to read. More like R. Hell Stein. Yeah, but I de- I think that that and also just this like the silly kids horror shows on like Nickelodeon and stuff. Sure. Didn't they do a Goosebumps show for kids? Or something? Are you afraid of the dark? Are you yeah. afraid of the dark? Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. it was. I think it all made me think that Stephen King must be the same. Yeah. Yep. And there are still things of Stephen King that I would, I still want to eventually read. Like I've heard the dark tower is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It is. It's so dense with Stephen King lore and mythology that it's kind of hard to oh. get into. This is because the later books. So it would probably end up bothering me. Uh, yeah. I, the, Universal testimony is it kind of gets stuck up itself. Everybody agrees it falls off on book five. How many books are there? Seven. Oof. Book, book four is really good, though. Book four is you're like, yeah, this is great. I am in for this ride. It's really emotional. Yeah. And then it's book five where he gets all angsty and he's changing into a, a young adult. Book five is when it gets meta. Book five, book four is actually the angsty. We go back into his past. He has this doomed love affair. It's really moving. It's a lot of people's favorites. What is it King about book, book five? Not usually being all that great. Oh, who else wrote a bad? Oh, Rowling wrote a bad yeah. book five. Sure did. Although, is it a bad book five or is it just a book five that That's tackles right, a bad part? You like part to take Harry, the Harry's life insane position that book three is a bad one. I, I understand why people like it. I don't think it's objectively bad. I just think it's something that I don't personally like. It is. It's like a, the idiots that like a, it's an insane a, position. Perot. It's an like insane it. position. Uh, We're doing like a, Ross Perot. Yeah, Ross Perot. Yeah. <laughs> Although the people that voted for Hero. Trying to turn this into like a Fox Network TV show today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're insane, Nathan. <laughs> and your ideas are crazy. Yeah. Well And um, I don't know why anybody would ever listen to you. Ah, uh, well, you know. And yet here you are. Yeah, here I am. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. Yeah. Uh, I wish I was a little faster. At he this who board. controls the soundboard controls the way our audience thinks. I love crickets. Makes me think that I'm sitting outside with a nice cool beer and a good book. Yep. What if we just had this play through the whole podcast? I think that'd be great. Feel like they were sitting with a nice well, cold beer. Well, people, welcome to the booking well, where we're all sitting out on Nathan's porch and going to talk ourselves some Stephen King today. The booking origin story happens on a porch with yeah a sound like this and maybe some beer. So maybe <laughs> I don't think it was beer. <laughs> no, it was, no, beer. It was beer. I was just trying to clean it up a little bit, <laughs> but yes, uh, it wasn't heroin. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. It was no. ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, that's what it was. It was 10 years ago. It was a long time ago. We were babies. Yeah. And, and I, I think we were all a little bit more enamored with the demon liquid that is alcohol at the time. Coffee. We were coffee. Coffee. Yeah, coffee. We got way too jittery. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our Seattle days. We kept cycling through the bathroom. And- yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we had there was a lot of urination that day. I'll tell you. <laughs> Well, there was a lot of urination that day. <laughs> Openings to the podcast have been better and better lately. 
Hey, listen, we didn't get to the, the, the bad opening until uh, a good 15 minutes into this one. So I, I like it. We did like some good stuff first and then we did the opening. Oh, we should uh, start doing it more that way. Maybe yeah. we won't. It'll alienate the, so the new listeners can like have some false hope and yeah. then suddenly get derailed. So Jake, what, what, any other baggage for Stephen King or anything like that? No, that's it. That's what I brought to this read. Never had read Stephen King. So. Well, I think my baggage is probably much more typical of a lot of people. Your baggage is very, you guys' baggage is very typical of some people too. But I think my baggage is probably more typical, more typical, which is that I found Stephen King enticing because he had these cool covers and these cool premises and everybody on the playground kind of knew that's the one about the creepy clown. That's the one about this. And I was like, Ooh, a creepy clown. That sounds fun. And so I was very much aware of who he was and what he did and the premises and even the plots to many of his books, just because so many of them are ubiquitous in, yeah. in popular culture. In fact, when we get to context, I want to see how many of them <clears throat> the two of you guys can just name. Well, yeah. It'll be interesting to, it'll be interesting to see. Sorry, I keep piggybacking You'll on your guys. You'll be shocked by how little I can... You keep reminding me. Uh, so one of my other... Stephen King with my my aunts were also into kind of these cheap horror, mm-hmm. but they were Dean Koontz fans. Yeah, Dean Koontz... Don't mean to be mean Koontz here, but he sucks. Yeah. He's terrible. He's what you guys both expected from Stephen King. He's exactly. Trash. Uh, just to go back to his point about R.L. Stein, I think that the whole milieu that came because of King kind of soured King. Well, it's exactly, yeah. there was a big horror boom in the 70s, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's just like the big comedy boom when Rodney Dangerfield and Stephen Wright and George Carlin, all these guys got popular. It's like, there's also a bunch of terrible guys that get, Polly Shore comes out of that. And it's just like, there was such a market for comedy that all these terrible people could could get a job in, in comedy clubs because they were just looking for product to push. And it's the exact same thing with the horror boom of the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. It's just like it was such a popular genre that just if you wanted to break in and you were had any talent at all or didn't, you could write a bad horror novel and yeah. have, have a higher hope of getting it published. I mean, it's still true if you want to get published. If, if your goal in life is not to be an artist, but just to make money, it's easier to break into a genre than it is to break into a, I'm going to write a dramatic art novel. Well, just write a superhero yeah. movie screenplay. and Which yeah. is why we're excited to announce the Bookening's first co-written series of novels of young adult sci-fi horror superhero. romance superhero mm-hmm. fiction that we are going to release next year. Yep. yep. It's called um, Harry Hunger Games and the... Green Mile. And the Green Mile. <laughs> <laughs> and here is Jake's coffee. Everyone's coffeeed up. Hey, mine's better than you yours because it's black. Uh, we just like our coffee with a little scream. <laughs> Can we I get... all felt the bleed for coffee. More. More me. There yeah, you go. That's better. Yeah. All right. So, so I remember Stephen King being very ubiquitous and everybody kind of knowing the premises. A lot of my friends or had seen certain of the miniseries. There was the Tim Curry It miniseries. Cujo. Cujo. Carrie. Carrie. Yeah. He's got a lot of things that he wrote. And, and so, I, yeah, I just remember being intrigued by it. And at a certain point, and we were never, I was never allowed to read Stephen King, but at a certain point I, I talked my parents into it, which is weird. I don't know why they fell for this, but I literally pulled the old like, well, I'd like to read it so that I can know like what's going on in the culture. Like, it's, it's for personal studies. <laughs> yeah, it's for personal studies, Dad. And I don't know why. It, it, my parents weren't idiots. Like, I don't know why they fell for that. Maybe my memory of it is faulty. But the way I remember it is 
my dad was like, okay, yeah, you can read it. <laughs> so I read it, which is a big blockbuster horror novel about a killer clown that yeah, it's pretty graphically violent and yeah. perverse sexually and all kinds of things. But the thing that I remember about it is that there is a scene where a little boy is who is fat is wears a big sweater so that girls will not notice how fat he is. And I felt so known and so seen oh, man. <laughs> by Stephen King. I mean, it was just like, I mean, I think we've probably all had this experience with an author in our lives. And if you haven't, I pity you. And I've had it with much better authors than Stephen King. But where, where you just feel like someone reaches across whatever divide of time and class and everything else, and they just, they get you. And Stephen King so deeply understood what it was like to be a loser outcast kid um, in a way that these these pandering kind of Harry Potter knockoff people, you're, you're, every YA novel starts with an outcast loser kid. But Stephen King understood the speci- he wrote with specificity. Yeah. Like this, these are the <laughs> kinds of clothes that a fat kid wears to hide his fatness. Like he Sad. he remembered the details, and so it was all just like you could really, really, really connect to it. And uh, yeah, I kind of fell in love with him for that. And I kind of still love him for that. I mean, he's, he's a very talented guy and he has just his ability to put himself into people. It's weird. I mean, I guess we'll probably talk about this. He has no empathy for his, his Percy's, his villains in his Mm -hmm. novels, but his ability to just make you feel like you're living on the green mile or in the nursing home with Paul Edgecombe, the amount of detail and lived experience that he brings to that whether it's through research or through imagination or just through basic human empathy, I don't know. And isn't, is it true that one way that he gets around the way he tells a story, like actually one of the things that ended up making me hate, kind of turn on Harold Bloom was how much he hated Stephen King. He and really hated he, Stephen King. And how yeah. much he hated J.K. Rowling. Because mm-hmm. that was around the same time I had just read The Green Mile and I was starting to read the Harry Potter series and I'm like, man, there's something... There's something really stuck up and just kind of vile about that approach to literature. Like everything has to be mm-hmm. that pristine and it's not even beautiful. All it, it, it ends up being like we talked about with the Shakespeare episode last time with people who only want to self-congratulate themselves about their education. Right. And so all Harold Bloom ever wanted to do was- I like to self-congratulate other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you like to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably something, a very deep insight right there, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Sorry, I derailed you. All right, I'm I'm done, guys. (laughs) Hey, speaking of, were you about to say, you're about to say how he gets his depth or something like that? Is it, you said, is it true that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Through uh, first person, like most of his stories are told from a perspective of the narrator. That's not true. This is actually, I would say, an outlier, although he's one of the best first person writers that I know. Because that really works for this book. I mean, the voice what of is, Paul Edgecombe in this book is wonderful and you really yeah. miss it. And the, as wonderful as Tom Hanks is in the movie, I think you really miss the voice of yeah. Paul from the book. Of Paul from the book. Yeah. yeah. One thing in my context that I forgot about because it's just like exists in another category of my in my mind is on writing. Mm-hmm. It's just a fantastic little memoir book. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a great book. And it, it called to my, uh, came to mind just now because I remember him talking in that book about when it comes to the question of research versus imagination, 
it sounds like most of his research is done in post and with friends. Yeah. From that book. If you remember, remember he has a that. whole section about how you never let research get in the way of your writing. So you write it. And then you have you either know the right people to help you fact check and get things get your details squared away, right? Or you go back and fact check and do it yourself. But you you save all of that sort of like get the details right, get the all all the beats right. You save all that for your editing process. Yeah. So it seems like with him, it's all imagination. Well, he's got a great imagination, and he's got enough experience in life to make it like just. All the nicknames, all the the story of the black woman who got off of death row and had murdered her husband or whatever. Like, there's just all these things that feel so much like you could be watching a documentary about death row and you'd hear these kinds of stories and these kinds of people across the board in his writing. Stephen King is so good at at that. He can just take anyone's point of view in any time in any location and just make you feel like step right into it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really. I don't even know. I mean, I think Tolstoy might be somebody I'd compare him to. I know that's... And that ability. And the ability to just be like, all right, now I'm writing from the perspective of the horse and I know everything about horses. Like That's Tolstoy. And that's a literal example. Uh, Stephen King is similar. Was it my Antonia that... What had the story about the airplane and stuff that was just kind of random? Steinbeck. Steinbeck, East of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to that. It's a very American trait. Yeah. Well, Steinbeck is like one of those guys. He wrote one book like that, and you feel like he poured all of his anecdotes into that one Mm -hmm. book. And never had it again. And never really had it again or before. But King is really just good at that. King is just good at that. And man, he's when he's writing really well, he's writing really well. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this last line is great. We each owe a death. There are no exceptions. I know that. But sometimes, oh God, the green mile is so long. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this book goes hard, which is well, I suppose we'll talk about. All right. Well, I guess we've done enough baggage. I read all the Stephen King. I have a I have a huge soft spot for Stephen King. He is very wicked, and I don't even think he's primarily wicked because of his horror. I think he's primarily wicked because he just has a need to include sexual perversity way too often and in way too much graphic detail in a way that sort of goes beyond even just the sort of I'm writing a popular book and I have to throw some sex in there. It's, it's just, it's always tawdry with him. There is something wrong with the guy. And maybe some of it is his, just his ability to put himself in any situation. It means if he's writing a rape scene or something like that, he wants to, he wants to make you live that too. But there is something that goes too far with him that, that, that is not comparable to, the vulgarities of a Clancy or a Grisham or, or anyone else that was kind of popular at the time. So he's problematic. You got to be careful what books you read with him. But so I want to say that up front, but I also want to just admit that there's so much of my thinking and my, that's probably come from Stephen King. Like even just as Jake says that Jake says like, Oh, I remember a part in on writing where there's a dichotomy between research and imagination. Well, I just said research and imagination without realizing I was probably taking that that paradigm from mm-hmm. Stephen King. And I probably yeah. do things like that in every <clears throat> episode because he was just one of those guys that I read everything. And you can and tell it, from this book, he's warm and personal in the way that he writes. So you feel like you have a relationship yeah. with him. I do think it allows him to just tell a story too. Yeah. So he'll, there are enough facts in here that you know he did some research, but it doesn't get in the way. Like well, I know like he, Grisham uh, and those my guys. My memory, because I, re- I read this <clears throat> fairly recently, he he wants you to be sure all your ducks are in a row because he doesn't want you to take anybody out of the story. 
story is king. Mm. Yeah. So you write the story and you don't let details get in the way of writing and telling the story. But then you had better come back and shore up every last detail and not get anything wrong. Because if you get the caliber of bullet that goes into the gun wrong, then yeah, Joe in Alabama will hate your guts. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for Joe in Alabama to hate your guts. The only reason is because you were too lazy yep. to do the work of figuring out that detail. And you should never be that careless in your detail work. Yep. Well, but you, but, <clears throat> but never let the detail work st- put a stopper on anything or get in the way of yeah. But like the I was, uh, I was reading something not too long ago about like how that like a Tom Clancy or somebody like that, mm-hmm. where they have like a whole research team. Yeah. Right? And they do all that work, and it's just like. And I, I, th- those sort of, I know those stories are fine, but that, that sort of thing doesn't appeal to me. Where it really is also about, yeah. Details. In the case of both, in the case of Crichton, he's going to stop to tell you all the science that he learned. Yeah. In the case of Clancy, a lot of times he's going to stop to. Although I think Clancy's better than Crichton, I, Clancy will stop to so that you understand the geopolitical <laughs> reality or the yeah, technology or or whatever it is. To be fair to Clancy, I've actually never read a Clancy novel. I like Clancy. I think he makes all that I just stuff. Finished my first Clancy. fun. I mean, I think yeah. what what makes Red October or Clear and Pleasant Danger, one of those books, fun is that he figures out how to make the research part of the story in a way that you're like, well, a subatomic submarine doing this could do this, which makes it so Jack Ryan has to do this. And it's yeah. fun. But yeah. it's certainly not as clean and story-driven as as Stephen King. It's Tolstoy. It's Tolstoy, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not as good as Shakespeare. <laughs> and, uh, and King is no Tolstoy, so why are we even talking about him? Well, I think we need some context. But <laughs> You just shot me, though. Yeah, I just shot Brandon. Obviously, because of my affinity and love for Stephen King and Brandon's snobbish hatred of him. Yep, uh, I am Harold Bloom. You are Harold Doom, Gloom, Ghoul. So I am actually going to take the context honors, if that's all right. Wanna, yeah, never mind. <laughs> One of my uh, recommendation letters to grad school, one of my professors wrote in that letter, that I was the closest thing to Harold Bloom he had ever met. And I'm not sure I really like that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Frailty, yeah. thy name is Brandon. It's kind of stuck with me. Like is... One of those things that you don't know if you want to be remembered like that. Yeah. The, wow. Yeah, the wrong compliment can be a lot more insulting yeah. than the worst insult sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and the right insult can be a compliment. Yeah. It's just how life works, I guess. All right. You guys ready for some king text, some con? King, no, King text. King King text. text. King's text. Mm -hmm. Some Stephen text. All right. So I want to start by describing the first scene of his first published novel, a very famous scene from Carrie, because I think it exemplifies everything that makes the man brilliant and everything that makes the man problematic. Are you guys aware of the opening of Carrie by any chance? Ladies' locker room. Ladies' locker room. Yeah. So it's the girls' locker room in high school. Carrie White is this outcast. This is in the book that opens this way? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I've never seen the movie either. Yeah, well, it's definitely in the movie too. So it's, it's a girl's locker room. Carrie White is this outcast. Her mother's a religious nut. She's Nobody likes her. She's bullied. She's picked on. And basically the scene goes like this. We're in a girl's locker room at school, and Carrie gets her first period, and she starts bleeding. And because her mother has never told her what a period is she thinks she's going to die and she starts screaming help me help me help me and then all the girls turn on her and say creepy carry creepy carry and pelt her <laughs> with tampons 
<laughs> and I just am so happy about that. Not because it's not because it's you guys are both giving me these looks like Ugh. no, th- th- I'm not happy because that happened to Carrie. But I do think it exemplifies what makes Stephen King Stephen King, which is imagine you have this problem. I'm writing a novel about an outcast, and I have to solve the problem of writing a scene where I set up who she is, the world, the milieu, all the characters, and I make you feel it. And so the, obviously the dumbest way I could do that is to not to show but to tell. Just say Carrie was an outcast and nobody liked her and they picked on her. Second to that, you know, better than that would be to write an okay scene or to write five scenes or to write ten scenes or to write a whole first act that establishes the situation. But a master like Stephen King or like Charles Dickens or like any number of the great populists, they're just going to find it, find one thing, like a, an iconic piece of imagery. And I mean, the thing I would compare it to, if you think about Christmas Carol, like Charles Dickens has a problem. He needs to establish that this guy is a miser. So then he <laughs> writes three or four of the most entertaining, iconic little Fred's going to come in and he's going to tell him you ought to be buried with a, anyone who goes about with Merry Christmas on his list should be buried with a hock of holly through his heart. Buried in his nose pudding with a Boiled hock. in his own pudding and buried with a hock of holly and, in his heart. Right. And it's just like, it's so, it, he, re, he, Charles Dickens wrote the four best scenes ever to show that a guy is a miser and they're so inherently entertaining and they just set up the situation and the characters so well. Stephen King's exactly. I mean, you give the problem of we need you to set up an outcast girl who's weird and religious and all this to any author. You could get so many brilliant solutions. But Stephen King, he's just going to come up with one thing and it's going to be visual. It's going to be an image. It's going to be unforgettable. Like now that maybe you never heard that until this podcast, but now that you heard me tell a dumb little my version of it, you will never forget that that's how Carrie opens. Yep. With a with a little girl getting pelted with tampons, like it's just now. It's also vulgar, tawdry, sensationalistic, giving at least half of its audience a peek into a place that maybe they don't really belong and shouldn't see. So, I think it's King in a nutshell. It's f- big, great, forceful individual scenes written with buckets of raw talent, but also just like not a lot of self control. I mean, maybe maybe you actually want to do five scenes that set this up a little bit more gently. Maybe maybe there's something a little cartoonish about this. And yet, these things happen. These kinds of things happen. Worst things happen in high school Yeah, every day. Sure. The legend, if I recall correctly, about that particular yeah. scene in the book is that that's all he had, and he wrote the scene, and then he threw it in the trash. Yep. Because he was like, where do I take this? I don't know anything about being a high school girl. And then his wife pulled it out of the trash can and said, nope, I'm in love. You have to finish this. Right. Every high school girl will understand this. Mm-hmm. And you've connected immediately to everybody. I mean, we're all on Carrie's side. And if people know the story of Carrie, she's a telekinetic girl who's eventually pushed and bullied so far that she goes crazy and burns her school to the ground and kills all the bullies and everything. And so you really have to get everybody solidly on Carrie's side at the beginning. You're basically telling a Columbine story. Because she's the good guy. But nobody thinks about it as a Columbine story. And one of the reasons they don't think about it is because that opening scene is so brilliant. I'm not even arguing that it's good. I'm just arguing. We could talk about what, whether it's bad in some way. But it's all it's 
the amount of talent and raw talent and genius that goes into conceiving of a situation like that really really is next level. I mean, it really is Charles Dickens or Leo Tolstoy or Bill Shakespeare or, or whoever. I admire it as somebody who sometimes writes things. It's like I've been faced with the problem before of I have to explain that this character is this way or I have to set up a thing. And it's just like, who comes up with something that iconic, something that brilliant, something that pops that vividly, something that instantly does that much work? Stephen King, baby. He does, yeah. That's who. And the guy has sold 350 million copies. He has a net worth of $500 million. He is absolutely ubiquitous. Everybody knows his name, and I think it is because he is a writer like that. He's cinematic. I mean, another thing to say about that scene is it's cinematic, not that it needs to be made in a movie, but it's a visual. It's a thing that we can all instantly picture. You got the blood, you got the tampons, you got the locker room. It's like, I mean, I'm sorry that it's not nicer, but I'm rubbing our faces in a, a little bit because that's just Stephen King. He was born, Brandon, in 1947. Nice. In Portland, Maine. Astronomers. Astronomers. What do you call those guys? Astronomers. Astronomers. They're still confused by Stephen King because the stars aligned, baby, when he was born. All the stars aligned. His father went out for the proverbial pack of cigarettes when he was just a little kid. I think it might not have even been a proverbial pack of cigarettes. I think his father may have literally said, I'm going for some cigarettes. Never came back. That explains quite a bit. It explains quite a bit. He was a merchant marine. Stevie's dad was... His mom would say, when people ask you why he's left, say he's in the Navy and that he's at sea. And then she would follow up with, that may not even be a lie. His mom was a tough broad who raised him, lived with relatives, made sure that he did okay. He seems to have a lot of admiration for her. And she likes to read pot boilers. So that's some early Stephen King origin story stuff. She called them trash, but there was a big distinction between good trash and bad trash. Stephen King has said in places that he has spent his life trying to write what his mother would have called good, good trash. trash. He doesn't talk much about this, but apparently he saw a friend killed by a train, mm. which ha- I don't think he includes in on writing. No, I don't remember that at all. Apparently Stevie's like six years old or something. He goes out with a friend and then he comes back hours later just in shock, like, and nobody knows where he's been or or like what happened, and then later they find they find out that his friend was hit by a train on the train tracks where they were playing, and Stephen King actually doesn't have any memory of that. But huh. gee, I bet that made an impression of some sort. Feels other. feels like maybe it was formative. Another formative thing is yeah, I bet it was. They 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 stay with their <clears throat> they're they're staying with relatives, right? Because dad's abandoned them, and I think mom is taking care of her mother and stuff. Anyway, they're they're living with an an uncle or at an uncle's house they're browsing through an attic and his brother finds his dad's copy of lurker in the shadows the hp love and a collection of hp lovecraft stories and stephen king said i knew that i'd found home when i found that book that's creepy (laughs) so he comes from kind of hard bitten life loses his dad never knows his dad i think at a certain point he's famous enough and has enough money to track, track him down track him down Steve Jobs did that. Yeah, maybe I'm actually confusing that with Steve Jobs. You're I right. Wondered. Yeah, two people with uh, Steve. Similar stories um, and Steve. Yeah. 
Stephen King, so that's, that's kind of his early life. He has this connection to his father, vague, tenuous connection to his father through horror stories, especially the pulpy ones. Graduates from the University of Maine in 1970 with a BA in English, meets his wife Tabitha, who looms large in the Stephen King legend, as Jake alluded to, teaches high school, takes day jobs, writes evenings and weekends, and his wife really believes in him and wants him to spend time, send, and he sends these short stories to men's magazines and stuff like that. Jake's raising his hand. I just have a funny little thing I remember that predates that, which is that he started writing and selling little novels and novellas back in grade school. Yeah, that's right. I think he sold his first when he was 12 or something wow, like so that. He, was writing he, would, he, would, he would write these salacious <clears throat> stories and then like he bought like a little and he'd bind them together and he'd sell copies. And So he wanted to be a writer since he was a kid. And some yeah. of it was parody and some of it was like thinly veiled stuff with, of his teachers and they would sell really fast because he was mocking <clears throat> the crap <clears throat> out of people and he got in all kinds of trouble or or he would go see like some B flick and then write the novelization of it, stuff like that. Huh. And, yeah. One thing that helped him is that people actually had an appetite for writing back then. Like there were men's magazines and things that published stories, which yeah. we just we just live in a different world than that now. Now he would be making videos. Yeah, I mean he'd be a YouTube content creator or something, which yay. Yeah. But his wife believes in him, and so he is getting some stuff published in men's magazines. And then he, yeah, as Jake said, the 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 story of Stephen King, the legendary stories. He writes the beginning of Carrie, this famous opening scene, and he's just like, I can't do this. He throws it in the trash. Tabitha happens to find it in the trash, happens to read it, and says, this is great. You must finish this. I'll help you with the female perspective. And the rest is history. It's a great pot boiler with a great little hook. And... His second novel, are you raising your hand now? No, no, no. Okay, sorry. So, I thought you were just messing, messing with my ring. Messing with your ring. <laughs> uh, teacher, teacher. teacher. <laughs> yes, Brandon. His second novel, I think he writes a more serious adult novel, and then he also writes Salem's Lot, his vampire yeah. novel, and he has a choice between publishing, which one's going to be the next one that he publishes. And Tabitha, again, says, ah, Salem's Light is great. It's Peyton's Place with Vampires. It's going to be a big hit. You should publish it. And he's like, okay, this means I'm going to be a horror writer. They're always going to think of me like that. And she's like, yeah, what, who cares? And so he kind of makes his choice at that point. And then he's, he's pretty popular. He's writing a wave of popular horror novels and things like that. But what really sends him through the stratosphere is the movie, Brian De Palma's film of Carrie in 1976 that hits and then in in the 70s into the 80s Stephen King writes well in the 70s alone he writes Carrie Salem's Lot The Shining The Stand and The Dead Stone the, the Dead Zone which are all iconic and then in the 80s he writes Firestarter Cujo Running Man Christine Pet Cemetery It Misery The Dark Half and Needful Things the reason he is able to be so prolific is a he just knows what order the words are going. He's just gifted and he reads a lot and he writes a lot and he works hard. The other reason he's able to be prolific is because he is coked out of his mind in the 70s and 80s. He does not even remember. He literally says he has no memory of writing Cujo. Like, no memory. What's he wrote an entire novel? It's not a short story. It's a novel, which he does not. And he's like, that's a fun book. I wish I remembered writing it. That'd be a nice memory to have. But he does not have it. So he's do he he's an addict. He's doing cigarettes and alcohol and pills and everything. Not 
his life is pretty scandal free beyond that. Like he seems like a a good main vulgar rough edge kind of main East Coast kind of dude, but not not a bad dude. He's, he's faithful to he's his, faithful yeah. to his wife, which I've always appreciated about him. But eventually his family gets together and his wife basically says, you have a choice. You can be married to Coke or you can be married to me. I'm not going to stay and watch you kill yourself. And so he cleans up, goes to rehab. He always has this love-hate relationship with the critics. They did not respect him. He is fairly respected now. I think everybody thinks of him as just an institution and as a pretty good writer. You know, most people say, I was surprised to find he was a good writer, but he is a good writer. Mm-hmm. We all have. That's we, my hot take. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But but also everybody knows the Shawshank Redemption was him now. Everybody like we're, we're downstream of all that stuff. He's got respectability. Also, our culture has been degraded and become more vulgar. So his stuff, which felt kind of arty in the 70s, now feels really arty and really artfully done just because it's got some semblance of of quality, mm-hmm. um, if I may be so bold. I, but he's finally sort of won his literary su- acceptance for the most part. I mean, I think he'll always have a chip on his shoulder about the Harold Blooms. and But Harold Bloom's day is kind of coming. and gone. Yeah, Harold Bloom is dead. And I think with Harold Bloom, a lot of that way of thinking. Yeah, I for mean. The better for the worst. Yeah, there's a sense in which for most <clears throat> of his career, he had to he couldn't go through the main door. He had to take the servant's entrance. I don't know that that's actually true anymore. But I think he probably still feels a little bit of that inadequacy. I mean, I can't read his mind, but... It, I'm sure he does. The interplay between him and critical acceptance and whether he's writing for the people or whether he's writing for himself is just a... He'll never be on the shortlist for a Nobel Prize. No, no. But he did win the National Book Award or something like that, yeah. which is what made Harold Bloom really mad yeah. around the time you're talking about. I can remember... Him and Rawling were both like being rediscovered by the intelligentsia, and Bloom was upset. Yeah, just like this guy is not yep. good. I could find it. Just- I mean, he Bloom wrote a whole book on it. That's what I remember. There's, yeah. uh, no, he was mad. He was mad. But uh, yeah, Stephen King is great. He achieves wonderful success. Like I said, he's a good writer. He's also a good. I think he's a deeper sort of pop spiritualist. I mean, he's not deep. I'd put him on about the level with Spielberg, but I think that's a better level than most people <clears throat> attain to in, in terms of having a little philosophy, having a little something to say. Something Green Mile faces death in a way that's more profound than most popular fiction does. Absolutely. I don't think you have to be apologetic about saying that. What, one of the really refreshing things for me in reading this book was, hey, here's a point of view from a man who understands people puts real elbow grease into his craft and has something to say. And you just don't have that combination in popular writers all that much because they don't have to do that. They can get away with one thing. Right. And so they don't need to have a point. They don't need to have something to say. They just have to get you and keep you turning the page or they don't need to be as artful as he is because they're good at keeping you turning the page or because they're good at character or whatever it is. But he, he seems to really work at all of those things at plot at character at scene at theme and theme point purpose and some of it may be a little over the top but my goodness i'll say i expect how, how many people more. try to be i don't know he got tears from me in the book yeah and that used to not be a very hard thing to do but the more i read the harder it gets it seems but he got it he got it done well, and how so, easy before it would would it be for this? And book I didn't to, feel manipulated, right? How easy would it be for this book to be shrill in its 
hatred of capital punishment. And Stephen King's no fan of capital punishment, that's for sure. But No, he wants to leave you hating it. But you don't feel unfair. As a proponent of capital punishment, I don't feel all that unfairly treated by I don't feel unfairly treated either. I completely see why he told a story that made you sick to your stomach about it, Mm -hmm. made you understand the perspective of the guy responsible for putting people to death and the way that he would feel, especially when he hits up against knowing that he's put somebody innocent to death. Right. But, and it was his job. And even if it's a little exaggerated, I doubt he's wrong that that kind of field attracts Percy's now and again. And I mean, of How course it does. How could it not? How could it not? And would Brutal and Paul both have quit after dude, <laughs> the main guy from the book, the black guy? John uh, Coffee. John Coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I mean, the like, book. Like the drink, only spelled different. Only yeah. spelled, not spelled the same. Yeah. Let's do as much impression. <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, let's, let's not. <laughs> the way that black people talk on this podcast. Yeah, so uh, I think he's pretty good. I mean, he is also just a great generator of hooks. Like, who cares how book the bad, bad or good this book is? It's just got a hook that I have to read. Well, and I mean, if you want to think just in terms of formula, all of life is death row, and I'm in a nursing home, and that's its own kind of death row, and I'm telling a death row story. Right. Like... It's really on the nose. It's really structurally obvious. But sometimes big metaphors for the big things in life we all face are just nice. Well, that's the other thing. Stephen King is interested in, like any great populist, he is, I don't think, being shallow. Like he, he's not making himself be interested. I think he just think he has a genuine interest in the things that happen to be central to human experience. He has things to say about love, things to say about death, things to say about family, seems things to say about dads and moms. All the stuff that everybody deals with, that's what Stephen King wants to deal with too. And there's lots of people who are just as artistic or more artistic that are just more interested, more drawn to the periphery of human experience, which is fine. But that's not Stephen King. Stephen King is interested in the things that are central to all of our lives. The commonplace. Right. And lots of people could care less about the things that are central to our lives. Well, they, but, or they want to be distracted from it, which again makes you appreciate. See, I think if I had read The Green Mile in place of a Grisham, I, I, we had this discussion earlier about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And it took Shakespeare for me to realize there are authors out there that can make you feel heard and understood and seen and offer you more than just a distraction from anything related. I think Stephen King, I think this book could have been that for me. Right. Well, similar to watching E.T. as an adult and realizing, oh, it's not about an alien. It's about a little boy whose dad abandoned him. Exactly. And he just wants a friend. And I could almost make myself cry talking about it now. Yeah. Stephen King's that kind of a guy where it's like, it's not really about a creepy clown. It's about the friends that we have that get us through the terrors of life or, or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just for fun, I wanted to see how many hooks the two of you could name. Okay. So Carrie, we already said telepathic girl. Yeah. Blow, Columbines are school. <clears throat> Salem's Lot, I already said. Vampires. Vampire invades small town America. The Shining? No idea. Ryder goes to weird hotel and kills Bates family. Bates Hotel, Bates Motel. The Bates Motel is psycho, but yeah. So alcoholic writer, Snowden, ghost hotel. The Stand? I don't know if I've ever heard of that one. Is it an apocalyptic? Absolutely, you're right. Yep. 
But the only reason I know that is because he talked about it in non-writing. Dead Zone? Does anybody know that one? Not a clue. The zone where there are lots of dead people. No, that one's where he can see the future and he sees that the president is going to... Oh, yeah. Like, a, a, be a bad... He sees he foresees Donald Trump and then he has to decide whether to shoot He's Donald like Trump assassin. or not. He's like an assassin. Yeah, it's, it's like a... Yeah. Does he choose? He aims a gun at Donald Trump and then Donald Trump, being Donald Trump, grabs a baby <laughs> and holds it in front of to protect <laughs> himself and then Donald Trump's career is ruined. There you go. But he doesn't have to pull the trigger. Firestarter, I bet you guys can both name this one. Somebody who can start a fire with their mind. Yeah, a little girl can start a fire. Cujo? I just guessed. Dangerous Dog. Dangerous Dog. I bet you can't do Running Man because it's not as famous. Johnny Depp. No. The Running Man's like a, what do you call it? What's the genre? It's like a Hunger Games kind of. Mm. Uh, Christine? Mm-mm. I've heard of that one. Christine's a killer car. Oh, yeah. Pet Cemetery? Yeah, your you pets come your back pets. to life. Yep. And not only that, your your kids. child, right? Yeah. I bet you guys can name this one it. Ooh. Creepy clown. Creepy clown. Misery. Ooh, There's writer. A, the pig. The lady. The lady and the guy and the pig. Lady guy, pig. She's stuck. She hobbles him. And then dark half and needful things. I doubt you can do, but maybe you can. No. Is needful things like a monkey's paw kind of? Yes. Very good. It's a little. It's a little. Curiosity shop with items that mm-hmm. punish their have some kind of poetic thing. <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty good for two guys that don't care about Stephen King and never did. The fact that you can name that man. I mean, it, imagine if I tried to do this with Dean Koontz or even with Clancy or not a clue. Yeah. Like I, I, yeah. I never tracked with Gritchum. I could tell you the plots of. I could tell you the firm because I remember the Cruise movie. But he just comes up with these wonderful hooks that that I've read all the Grisham ones, and apart from A Time to Kill. Right, the the racial one. Yeah. Young yeah. lawyer discovers conspiracy, stands That's up. them yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have to say, I only know King either through uh, any of those things through through on writing or from you. I think I've probably got needful things from you. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think he's he also, they've all been made into movies. So you've seen the posters, the trailers. Like Stephen King does not mind making money and he really doesn't care how good it is like he just sells his stuff and says hey as long as they don't mess with the book it's fine did he have a he's got 500 million dollars to show for it yeah he's he doing all right he's doing okay is he the dollar yeah dollar his dollar babies so yeah. if you're a young hungry filmmaker he will let you make a movie out of his short story for the price of a dollar which is his one of his ways that he gives back to the creative community that's pretty sweet all right all right, I'm going to connect it to modernism now. You ready for this, Brandon? All right, let's do this. All right, this is this is Stephen King's place. Sound effect. I, I wish ding, I did. Ding, I guess I can ding, play the ding, uh, ding, ding. the salon of style. All right, I'm connected to modernism. Oh yeah, uh, girls in skirts doing dances and doing the hoochie mama and the uh, jazz. April is the cruelest month. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's kill that. All right. So we have to get to modernism, though. So this is sort of Stephen King's place in genre history, the history of supernatural fiction and all that sort of thing. So through the 19th and even into the 20th century, Mm -hmm. you have gothic fiction, you have Victorian-style ghost stories, you have old-school monster stories, your Frankensteins, your Draculas, all that stuff, all of which tend to be mystical and somewhat removed from everyday reality. And set in the distant or recent past, 
and full of ornate Baroque language. So yeah, I guess Frankenstein is set in a, in a time period that's contemporary to when it was written, but Frankenstein's off in the mountains doing weird stuff. What you don't feel like is that Frankenstein's happening in your backyard. That would be terrifying. That would be terrifying. And then that's spoiler Probably alert. Illegal. That's spoiler alert where we're going. Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Yeah, exactly. We're, it all culminates with the Monster Squad. Dracula, it's like, yeah, he invades London, but as long as you don't ever go to Transylvania in the first place, you're not going to, you, you got to go to Eastern Europe where everything is still haunted and old and yeah. stupid. Except I've heard Romania is actually pretty beautiful to visit. Yeah. Bucharest. And- n- not as portrayed in yeah. the novel. You're going into the old world. Yeah. The point is the horrors are all removed and the language that describes them removes us. Most of these stories aren't written in sort of modern prose, especially the gothics, the, the sort of Anne Radcliffe type. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Castles, not at all. Castles. Part, and, part of the weird, almost grossness of them is the elaborateness of their Victorian style. Right. Which, which puts you at a step removed from the material because it's yeah. like, these are these wilting young maidens of the type that I never meet being seduced by these princes of the type that I never meet in these castles, which I never go to with these monsters and things that I would never occur and into that I would never come across. You go into the 20th century and we're kind of still doing that sort of thing. Only now we're even more looking back. We're not writing things that are connected to the here and now in our horror stories. So in 1904, M.R. James writes his ghost stories of antiquity. He's, it's arguably the best collection of ghost stories ever, but it's right there in the name. It's ghost stories of antiquity. It's all set 50, 100 years in the past. We read The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. Wonderful story. came out in 1907. It's modern. I mean, I guess it's about a modern dude, but he goes, again, he goes off the beaten path. He, as long as, long as you he never- encounters the old gods or- Aliens or or whatever it is, something, some kind of transcendent horror in the wilderness. As long as you stay out of the wilderness, it's like I never thought Jaws was that scary because as long as you don't go swimming, you don't have to worry about him. As long as you don't go into that wilderness, you don't have to worry about the willow monsters. In 1911, you got Phantom of the Opera as the big bestseller, and that is set in the 1800s, and it's a big Gothic opera house and all of that. 1913, The Lodger is the big horror seller, and that is about Jack the Ripper, and it's set 30 years ago, and it's in fog-shrouded London. So people really think if you're going to evoke terror, you got to look backward. It's like, it's actually not that dissimilar today, because when we make horror movies, we set them in the 80s. That's what Stranger Things is. It's like, well, it's, we can all feel like it was more likely to happen to them than it is to us. But then in 1914, Uh-oh. a little thing breaks out called <clears throat> World War One. Just a little thing. It's a bad war. It is. Full of men dying and mutilated. It, 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 the most horrific thing about the war that I've seen in like documentary footage, it's not so much that young men went over there and never came back. It's that they did come back and their bodies were broken and they mm-hmm. were had hooks for hands and they had missing eyes and missing lips and deformed faces. Yeah, they had and, those creepy masks they would make to help cover it up. Yeah, yeah, the creepy masks and stuff. It's like people hadn't had to deal with that kind of carnage on that scale ever. It was horrifying. And so what did that do to supernatural fiction? Well, I think it did three things, two of which are very intuitive, one of which is not. Intuitive thing, number one, is that it just became more brutal, more aware of the terrible things that can happen to the human body. Uh, it's they seem quaint to us now, but something like the Boris Karloff Frankenstein movie in 1931 
was profoundly creepy body horror for that's like we're digging up corpses we are putting electricity through rotting flesh and that's all much more in your face than it was even in mary shelley's novel where it's all kind of off stage and in this baroque romantic kind of i realize i'm using baroque and romantic in a stupid interchangeable way if it's not baroque don't fix it if it's not baroque don't fix it like you don't really know what frankenstein does to the monster or how he gets you just know he does something profane and dark and romantic and it gets a monster but but we're not like dealing with i'm hooking up electricity to a dead corpse in in frankenstein but then in the movie we are and i think it's it's in the way that karloff's makeup is silly now we see it on cereal boxes and stuff but it's really based on the war wounds that people came back from Uh world war one with And, and so a lot of that early monster 1930s monster stuff is that way it's like Here's the Phantom of the Opera. His lips are missing, and he looks exactly like a dude that got poisoned in World War One. Mm-hmm. So horror becomes more brutal, more body-focused, more nasty, more gory. Intuitive thing number two, which is very intuitive, is it becomes more nihilistic. And we've read our share of that in the writings of pulp master H.P. Lovecraft from the 1920s. Cosmic nihilism, everything's doomed. We're all going to die. There is no hope. Cthulhu will devour us all. Here's the non-intuitive thing. Here's the way that horror and supernatural fiction does not follow modernism as we understand it. Or maybe it follows not the Hemingway strain of modernism or the like Ezra Pound. It just is so opaque and again, Baroque and over the top. Like we've read Lovecraft, right? It's like, it's not written like anybody talks. It's written like a pastiche of what somebody thinks a Victorian would write like. Like it's 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 trying to evoke all this stuff through really over the top purple prose. And that is a lot of the pulp stuff. It's cosmic stuff. It's out there stuff. It's dark priests and ancient gods and it's language that's just like really over the top and keeps you at a I think a, a step removed from the material. So so that gets us through the 20s and through the 30s. And then in the 40s, we all know who the bad guy is. It's Hitler. It's not, it's not really a good time for supernatural fiction because there just wasn't that much of it because we were busy fighting a war against an actual real-life monster. And the the we didn't need metaphors because we just had a monster to fight. And we all believed he was a monster. And then in the 1950s, we kind of also all had a monster to fight. And that monster was the atomic age, space age fears, Cold War fears, horror, supernatural fiction really takes the form of just atomic fears of spaceships, all the kind of aliens and ray guns and end of the world type scenarios and stuff. Sci-fi really has a golden age in the 1950s. And it's horrific, nihilistic kind of sci-fi oftentimes. But it's all sort of the thing that we're really scared of is the bomb. And Mm -hmm. Russia and invasion and things like that. So our horrors, like when we think of horror, like if if I was to walk up to you in 1955 and ask you about supernatural fiction, you would think of it as being something old, something creaky, something that happened in Transylvania and everybody talked like this. You wouldn't think of it as being something that happened in your backyard. You wouldn't think of yourself as being threatened by a vampire or by any of that stuff. 1959 is a benchmark because it is the beginning of a little show about the supernatural called the Adams family. No, <laughs> now, the Adams family is actually a great example of what I'm talking Twilight about. Zone. Yeah, yeah. Twilight it's Zone. Twilight Zone. Adam, Adams family and monsters, all that early '60s stuff. It's like it's it's 
it's goofy gothic. Like we're not even scared yeah. of these guys anymore. They're so far removed from us. They're just like serial mascots. They're stupid. Um, but Twilight Zone is a, a mix of everything that we're talking about, and it starts to bring it into small town America. So you've got nuclear fears and space age fears and atomic fears. You've also got fears of supernatural horrors, but they're starting to come home. It's not you don't have to like in an old pulp magazine, travel to some voodoo island somewhere to encounter a little doll that's trying to stab you. you. You buy the doll for your daughter and then it tries to stab you. That's the Twilight Zone. So pretty important stuff. But in the 60s, we're still kind of in this, in the early 60s at least, we're still, when people go to write a horror book or make a horror movie, it's still very often in the gothic mode, looking back, doing just more bloody versions of Dracula and Frankenstein all that stuff. But the times, they are changing. So I'd say two things happen. Number one, well, really one thing happens, but social decay (laughs) happens in the 1950s going into the 60s. I promised in our, whatchamacallit, in our Shakespeare episode, for some reason, I promised I'd talk about a missing face in our Stephen King context. So I can talk about a missing face now because the missing face was stolen by Mr. Ed Gein the Wisconsin farmer in 1957 who was arrested on suspicion of the murder of one Bernice Warden and his farmhouse was duly checked. The remains of approximately 15 women were found in various small pieces. He'd fashioned clothes out of them, made lampshades, skulls on his bedpost. He was the first what we think of as modern serial killer. And this was profoundly disturbing for people because this isn't Dracula. This isn't Frankenstein. This isn't Cthulhu. But it's somebody just as scary, just as inhuman, just as other. But you saw him at the feed store every day. You said hello. He looked like your neighbor. He lived next door to you. And yet he is an inhuman monster who's capable of incalculable. He could be any one of us. He could be any one of us. Jake could be him. Brandon could be him. Or you never know. Worst of all, I, I could be him. The horror is not just across that white picket fence, but it's, it's, it's in it's the mirror. Nathan. Yeah, it's in the mirror. Yeah, it's actually me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you combine that with the general societal decay that was happening in, I mean, we would say it was a societal decay. Maybe some people would think of it as progress, but the sexual revolution, the loss of trust in institutional authority, going into the 70s with Watergate, all the stuff, the, the division of our country into progressive youth and conservative old people, all the, the right, the left, Nixon, everything. I mean, we don't have time for a social studies lesson, but I think we're all familiar with that stuff enough. And people are suddenly really feeling unmoored from morality, from what they expected of life. Kids aren't behaving the way that I thought my kid was going to work for the feed store, just like I worked for the feed store. But instead, he left and went to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco to have sex and do drugs. What's with that? People are just feeling weird and out of touch and, and all this stuff. And horror thrives in a, in, a, in a time like that. And the person to really figure that out was Ira Levin, an author named Ira Levin, who wrote a book named Rosemary's Baby which mm-hmm. came out in 1967. It's the story of a woman who is impregnated by none other than the devil and has the devil's baby. And the reason she's impregnated by the devil is because her neighbors are Satanists who are looking for the apocalypse to come, and her husband is very eager to get ahead in his career, and so he sells her out to 
her neighbors. And so it's very frightening and paranoid and close to home. And it's just dealing with fears that come from the sexual revolution. I'm a woman. I'm vulnerable. I'm scared. I can't trust institutional authority. I can't trust doctors to help me. I can't trust my husband to be in my corner. I don't know what he's actually thinking. I don't know what my neighbors are actually thinking. I'm in a tenement apartment and I can't trust that everyone is actually on my side. Actually, it turns out they could all be Satanists, which big broad metaphor, but it, it, <clears throat> it gets to the paranoia of the times. And I can't trust what's in my own body. I can't trust my own body and I can't trust the baby that I'm having, which if you think about Roe versus Wade is happening in what, 1973, six years later, mm-hmm. an abortion and the pill and everything already on the rise at this time. It's just like, it, it all makes sense. And then 1971 is The Exorcist, another blockbuster horror novel before it was ever, both of these were huge novels before they were ever movies. And again, it's the same thing. It's, I have a daughter, she's 12, she's hitting puberty and what's happening to her? Why is she acting so weird? Why is she acting strange? Why does she seem possessed by evil? And of course, in the novel, it turns out it's because she's possessed by the devil. But you can see how this was this is like a profoundly tapping into not fears specifically of Satan, but just fears of like what is happening to our children? What's why why don't the, the woman is a divorced woman, the husband's not in the picture in the exorcist. It's like and, and the and the 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 movie at least doesn't make a big deal out of that, but it's just, it's just striking that in some ways it's a very conservative story. Like I'm the single woman, I'm a successful single woman, but suddenly my daughter is possessed by something that I don't understand. So I got to call in the church. (laughs) They're the only ones that can deal with it is the old school hierarchical patriarchal Catholic church. Let's get the, the creakiest old priest to come in here. He's the only one that can save me. And the priest, doesn't even win. He he wins by sacrificing himself. He tells the devil to come into him and then he kills himself. So even then it's kind of, it's a draw. It's not a victory. 1972, you have things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 1977, you have Halloween, the rise of the slasher movie. You just have all this stuff that's bringing horror home, saying horror can be in your nursery. It can be in your neighborhood. It can be across the street from you. It can be in the hearts of your children. It can be in the heart of your husband or wife. It can be in your own heart, which is just pretty strikingly different from the Gothic stuff, from the Frankensteins and Draculas. And even things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which are dealing with some of the same themes, are doing it in such a big and removed way that you don't have to really face evil in the way that this modern boom of horror made you do it. And so all of this creates a big appetite for it and a big commercial boom and all the authors that we kind of know and that we grew up seeing on shelves come from this from the 70s this era Anne rice clive barker dean Koontz, people like that who your names you probably know and stephen king the reason i at the beginning i said the stars aligned is because he was born at just the right time to hit this wave crest with this wave and then he's outlasted it like he's most of those people have lost their popularity. Who knows who Dean Kuhn, I suppose he probably sells, still sells books. But, but like who remembers any of his books? Right, yeah. yeah. But Stephen King has had more cultural uh, lasting power. Stephen King will be remembered. I think he'll be remembered, yeah. But one of the things that he is the premier sort of uh, inventor of is 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 let's bring horror home. Let's The vampire is not 
invading foggy old London. He's invading small town America. The creepy clown is not pr- living in some Gothic castle. <clears throat> He's living in a sewer beneath Evansville. Carrie, this malevolent, is possessed by this malevolent force and she's not tearing down some village of Transylvania while they go at her with her torches. She's tearing down the high school that I went to and we can all put ourselves in those. And the irony is that now we're doing the same thing. Like now we're, we're looking backwards again to Stephen King and to his mm-hmm. ilk and we're trying to recreate that and Stranger Things and a lot of the popular stuff now is either set in the 80s or or 70s or you know people like that aesthetic and they think it's cool but at some point somebody will be the the new stephen king and they will crack the code for how to say this is what's scary to us in the 21st century and that person will be very successful and popular but i'm not convinced that we know who that person you don't think it's jordan peele no i don't think it's jordan (laughs) peele you can listen to our Sanity of the Movies episode on Up. I'm shocked. Nope. On Up? Nope. <laughs> yeah, on Up. That, that great, uh, the scariest thing the is an old man making a balloon house. <laughs> I, no, I mean, Jordan Peele, I guess, maybe came the closest with Get Out to saying something about, but, but that's so on the nose. It's like, I'm going to talk about systemic racism. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> you need more, a little bit more of a metaphor there, dude. I don't know whether Stephen King will last. I mean, only history will decide. I think it's hard to predict those things, but I suspect he probably will. I, I think the fact that he does write such hooky books will help because now for three or four generations, kids have said, have you read the one about the hotel? Have you read the one about the creepy clown? And I think kids will keep being attracted by the forbidden and keep wanting to say, hey, did you read the one about the creepy clown? And they're always looking to make movies off of his stuff. So I'm guessing he will last. But I think he's certainly, if you want to talk about his impact and his place in literary history, he certainly made room for people like J.K. Rowling to be taken seriously as artists. There's a world where J.K. Rowling gets as little respect as Stephen King got early in his career. Yeah, But she never had to deal with that. Everybody was pretty open to... J.K. Rowling being an artist, except for Harold Bloom. And I think Stephen King has paved the way for the synthesis of, you know, art and commerce or whatever you want to say. You know, the fact that we there is some serious discourse surrounding Marvel movies and things like that. Stephen King is probably one of the people who's bridged that gap for us most successfully in the late 20th century yeah. and early 21st. And that concludes my context on Stephen King, unless anyone has anything to add my to the king text no that was great did i connect it well enough to modernism you did well done yay it always comes back to modernism it always comes back to modernism i'm looking for that music yeah whoops i just wanted to play <laughs> that's the very all it yeah. just a little <laughs> suggestion just a little hint just a little hint well there's the camera going off ushering us into the Part where we talk about the big picture. Big picture. What did you guys think about the uh, Green Mile? I loved it. It's pretty good. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Jake loved it. Brandon liked it. I, I loved it. Jake's a man of people. Said. Brandon's a adjusted <laughs> monocle. Right. I it thought was adequate. I don't know why this man would have ever been awarded the American Medal of Honor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was good. I, I would say my big picture thought is I had seen the movie first, which I, I imagine a lot of people have seen that movie. And I hadn't. Did you, did you watch the movie? After I did, yeah. 
And the book is better, if you can imagine a book being yeah. better than a movie. The movie's um, still pretty good. The movie's good. I like the movie. It's just fine. The book goes harder than the movie, really. I mean, the book, Paul Edgecombe's life and his awareness of death and his own relationship to mortality, pretty depressing. The fact that his wife dies in a car in a bus accident and he makes us live through that with him, like all that yeah. stuff. Like the book is a little bit more, I mean, the movie's pretty sort of existential too. Maybe I'm just not remembering it. I haven't really seen it since the early oddies when it came out, but the book felt more depressed about the human condition. You just watched the movie again? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I read the book, watched the movie. Maybe yeah. it's just that Tom Hanks can't help but have a little bit of a twinkle in his eye. Whereas Paul Edgecombe as a narrator feels a little bit more cynical or vulgar. Or Maybe. I something. remember thinking Tom Hanks was pretty good. Yeah. Or maybe it's the, the movie does not include the Percy analog in the nursing home, right? The, no, the, the it doesn't. Or early. No, it doesn't. It hints at him. Right. Which I wouldn't include in the movie either. I think it's it's a part in the book that's maybe trying a little too hard or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Am I wrong? Is the movie actually pretty much just analogous to the the book and your experience of it? Or like I said, it's been decades probably since I've seen the movie. I didn't love the movie. <clears throat> I think, I mean, it does a pretty good job. It's pretty, pretty well done, but I, I don't know what, you know, it's the little things that I got sort of tripped up on that I just didn't like. Like, there's never any question in, from the perspective of the movie that John Coffey's innocent. There's never any question that something big and supernatural is happening. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows it. The lights all go haywire, all the yeah. special effects and things. And that's just not the way it King presents it. Well, that's, I, I will say, I think Supernatural is actually best suited to the page, which is crazy because so many classic horror movies and things like this. But <clears throat> like The Exorcist is a great example of a story where you can sustain for almost the entire book, is she or isn't she possessed in a book? It's, it's easy. You can, I mean, it's not easy, but you can do it very well and very effectively. The movie cannot help but, have a perspective. Have, make a choice. Yeah, answer the question one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's much harder for a movie to be ambiguous about something like that. And horror and, and this kind of and supernatural it, horror lives in ambiguity. Like, in, in the case of the the movie, the movie just decides we're not even going to pretend like there's a question here. Right. He's Dunk coughing coffee. out magical bugs. I know he does it in the book too, but. Yeah, but this is a level of ambiguity even about that in the book and there certainly aren't like all the lights going haywire all the time. He does stuff. Right. Well, and the music is telling you so much in the movie right? and it's the movie, as I recall, is kind of like Shawshank a little bit sentimentally overscored. And yes. Just like here's the wistful piano telling you how wistful everything was. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a good movie. I haven't seen it for a long time, but, but I really liked Paul's voice. Like we were talking about in the, in the book. In the book. Yeah. I think they did a good job in the movie casting John Coffey. But this is, I've, it's been forever since I've seen it, though. Yeah. Well, Michael Clark Duncan, Duncan was born to, I mean, John Coffey, well, here. Let's, when did that uh, movie come out? I want to say, I'm going to guess 2001. Yeah. It's been probably since Space then. Space Odyssey. Yeah. So 20 years since I've seen this movie. Is it 99? So I'm not going to, I'm yeah. not going to stand by any of my convictions about the movie. I'm going to stand by all my convictions because I'm a hero, just like the hall of heroes that we've yeah. known entered into so i think we all agree paul's a pretty great protagonist yeah yeah and he's just one of stephen king's every man 
men, but Stephen King's very good at writing every men. Every men, men. I mean, I don't know. Again, it's like I said about the difference between some hack writer saying the kid was an outsider and Stephen King bringing specificity to it. There's so much that's specific about Paul's life, about his marriage, about his relationship with his coworkers. that even, even though you don't really know that much about Paul more than he's just your every man kind of like, well, he's Harry Potter, he's Luke Skywalker, whatever. There's so many specific things that I like. I mean, I just I recognize things about myself and his marriage, especially. I like the way that his relationship with his wife is played. Yeah, it, Paul's marriage, I think, tells you a lot about Stephen King's marriage. Yeah, and tells you sweet things, I think. I think it tells you sweet things, good things about his marriage. Well, we were talking off mic about this, Jake, maybe like a month ago or something, but short of Tolstoy, who's obviously the, the master of this sort of thing, could we name another book that had this healthy of a, of like this, you should aspire to this kind of marriage at its core. No, I can't think of anything actually that's as, and we, I don't think we could come up with We, we went through the entire bookening it's list. It's like Levin and, and Kitty and Paul and his wife are two and, of the best marriages that we've. And Pierre and Natasha would be the other one, but, but really, <laughs> those are the three. Uh, that's right. <laughs> I mean, big buffoony can Pierre. You, can you yeah. think of, Good portrayals, good strong depictions of marriage in any of the books that we've read. The, the funny thing is how little. I mean, Austin gives you implications. Well, Austin gives you the beginnings. great courtships, yeah, but not great marriages because she. They said well, I do. You know, they. What's the aunt and uncle pair that's actually a pretty good marriage? In oh, in Austin, in Austin, in, uh, uh, Pride yeah, Prejudice. Mr. Yeah. The Gardeners. I think they are. Yeah, they're, they're uh, pretty good. They're good. That's they're good. good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good call. They're good, but still, I mean, Austin kind of has draws a modesty veil across marriage because she's just like, well, I've never had sex and I've never been married, and I want to write from experience and from observation. So, uh, the Darcys got married. It was great. Yep. Bye. The Bennets really bad. Yeah, Bennets. Yeah, she can write bad marriage. That's true. Yeah. She she had plenty of experience and observation of those, but yeah. she's actually, I think, I think she's in her humility does not want to try and imagine what night the Knightley's marriage actually looked like. She's like, I'm sure it was good, but. Yeah. I only know what goes into a courtship. So, yeah, I like old Paul. What about John Coffey? John Coffey, of course, is a magical Negro. He, King's got a lot of slack for... Slack? Is that the word I want? Flack. Yeah. Flack. <laughs> he has not gotten any slack. He has rather gotten Ain't given flack. given no slack. Yeah, he's given flack. But for, he's been given flack. And I think he may have even said, like, maybe I should have done a better job with John Coffey. Made him a magical Asian. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe I should have chosen a different race. But, I mean, the book is very, for all its specificity with Paul, with the prison guards, like, John Coffey is just there to be the symbol of something. Yeah. Yeah, the movie actually tries to make him more of a person. Yeah, which maybe would be a good instinct, but... It's just, it just makes it weird. Because he says more, he has more lines in like the first couple minutes of the movie than he does in the entire book. Yeah, it's kind of an unsolvable problem. I mean, he's he, he's got the initials JC for crying out loud. Like, yep, he is just written as a, a cipher, a symbol. A, a, well, that was he's actually, a figure of sacrificial innocence. Yeah, yeah. Although I love, I think that's actually what made the book feel more depressed. The book had more of the sense of. Here's this poor, illiterate black man who's been not blessed, but cursed with this <laughs> divine power that he has no idea where it comes from. He doesn't know what to do with it. And 
it's eventually going to get him killed. And he's feeling the, everyone's pain all the time. You know, he wants he wants to die. And there was just a more more of a depressing feeling associated with John Coffey than I remembered, at least from the movie where he did feel more like a an MN. Uh, yeah, oh, I don't know. I when I watched the movie, I felt like they tried to put more of a button on the. I feel everyone's pain all the time, and the evil in the world is oppressive, and I want to die and mm-hmm. escape it all, and gave him more agency in the in his death. In his, his death. death. Huh? Yeah, that's a problem. It's like the I can see I can see where, where they wanted to solve a thing from the book, but it's like you move. Paul's <laughs> like asking him. At you, one point, would you like me to set you free? Yeah. Read between my, the lines, John. And John's like, no. In fact, I would not like to be set free. I would like to die because it is. And he's like starts articulating all this stuff. In the movie? In the movie, yeah. 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 There's a pain going. I feel it every time, boss. All that stuff. Yeah. True, true, true. I like all the sporting characters. Uh, well, uh, I suppose I should save that for the crawlway, shouldn't I? Mr. Jingles. I love old Mr. Jingles. <laughs> the guy they choose to play, that character in the movie is pretty good. Yeah, he's good. Mr. Uh, Jingles, owner. Delacroix. De- Delacroix. Yeah, Delacroix. He's played by... Uh, What's his name? He's a character actor. Yeah, yeah. He shows up all over the place. Not William H. Macy, but he kind of looks like... Very different roles. Michael Jeter. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Is his name. He's like the... Priest and <clears throat> Sister Act, and mm-hmm. he's like, plays yeah, he's just he's like really wildly different character. Waterworld, Airbud, Patch Adams. Like, you need a guy with that face, then you hire that guy. Kind of a hoboish looking clown. Sad yeah, clown kind face. of a yeah. sad. It's kind of a William H Macy like diet. Yeah. William H Macy. William H Macy gets all the good William H Macy roles, and he yeah, has to course. take the crap William H Macy roles. But yeah, this is, I was forgetting how many stars were in. You got David Morse's Brutal, which is great. And he's Sam. A, he's awesome. Yeah. yeah he love. died young. Michael Jeter did? Yeah. I was if, afraid David Morse died because it was maybe sad because I like David Morse. Sam Rockwell as Wild Bill feels maybe a little on the nose, but maybe it was less than. No, it feels on the nose. <laughs> I'm Wild Bill. Oh, is it already time to talk about Percy? There's one villain. Is there more? Oh, I guess there's Brad. Brad Dolan. Brad Dolan and Percy Wetmore. Those two great three-dimensional villain characters. Uh How would you guys think about old Percy? Well, he's a horrible person, and he got what he deserved. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's very Dickensian, I think. Like it's, it's like. Well, yeah, there is a and there's a Dickensian quality too. Stephen it feels King. worse in the movie to me. Percy, the the justice that Percy gets. Well, it's yeah. kind of like what you said about John Coffey. If you start to dimensionalize him a little bit, that throws the equation off. And Percy's like having an actual actor try to embody that stuff and be blubbering while they put him in the closet and stuff. It's like. If your heart goes out to this dude for even a millisecond, then that throws the whole equation off. Like you just need this guy to be so unsympathetic. Well, they they also jump scared John Coffey grabbing him. Yes. In the movie. And you can't you can't make you can't turn John Coffey into a horror monster. Right, yeah. And make that feel good. But that's what they did. They turned him into a horror monster. 
Well, the degree of John Coffey's agency and Percy's <clears throat> demise is a question that Stephen King goes out of his way not to answer. But the movie has to have a perspective on it. Right. And it gives a great deal of agency to Coffey. Yeah, that's wrong. I think the book gets it right. John Coffey is just an agent of whatever this power is. It works through him. He has nothing really to do with it. And so God, if you want to put it that way, decided to punish Percy and John Coffey just happened to be his his tool, av- his, tool his avatar. Yeah. That's that's the way it should be played. But but no, in the movie plays it much more like John Coffey just decided to deal out justice. Yeah. Well, because he'd seen a vision of Percy with Wild. No, he saw a vision. He he touched Wild Bill. And this isn't from the book, I don't think. It is. is. It It is. Wild Bill touches him, and he does know that he's the one who killed the girls. But by the way, that is the most, that's the biggest ask, I would say, in terms of Dickensian coincidences. The fact that the killer of the little girls ends up in a cell across from John Coffey is a pretty big ask, but somehow it doesn't bother me too much in the the way it's done in the book, at least. But it's probably the most like, ah, here's a piece of the machine that we had to put in there. It works just fine. It works fine. It works fine. Yeah. Stephen King really doesn't like bullies. I think he's largely responsible for the trope of the schoolyard bully that gets their comeuppance. That gets their comeuppance. That happens in his books all the time. It's a stand by me thing. It's a, like the whole 1950s kind of... And Carrie, I mean, his first book is a classic. The bullies bully Carrie until she... And Percy's a pretty awful bully. Right. I mean, in the movie, do they? does he do it? that thing to Delacroix? Yeah, oh yeah. Absolutely. The, the movie, movie really does. rubs your face in it. Yeah. Almost as much as... Although the book rubs your face yeah, in it, Yeah, the book rubs your face in it. Yeah, with all the flesh coming off and all that yeah, stuff. it's awful. It's awful, yeah. It certainly does put you in touch with what the electric chair is and how it works and... Yeah, I mean, it was reading it this time. It was fun that not the electric chair, right? <laughs> but we we took a trip to San Francisco and we visited Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. So Alcatraz was fresh in my mind. Kind of had all reading those. through this, yeah, yeah. a sort of old timey prison and reading some of the stories of the prisoners who were caught in there and just how inhumane that soul style of prison is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty awful. Yeah, even for the worst. Humans, I don't know if that kind of isolation in prison is really... And it turns prison guards also into monsters. Well, that's one of the reasons it just why asks, I do believe in capital punishment. Yeah. Why, why extend this drama out yeah. over decades? Yeah. Yeah. Stephen King's mm-hmm. weird. I mean, he has so much empathy for every character. And he wants you to see them in the, all their flaws and weaknesses. And, you know, Paul can be a little cynical or this or that. But then... Certain characters now. Percy's just... And that is very Dickensian. It is Dickensian. I mean, it... Because Uriah Heep, no empathy there. Yeah. But some of the uh, other characters you do have some mild empathy for. I think Stephen King just believes in those people. Like, I think he really just thinks there are Percy's out there. He would probably say Donald Trump is a Percy. Like, there's there's just a person who's a living monster. And you need to avoid those people... Like crazy, that's all you can do. You see them walking down the street, you cross and walk yeah. the other side. I, I, I think like all his bad guys are like that. The Shawshank Redemption bad guys, you may remember or may not because they don't play as big of a part in the book, but they're like that. I mean, the prison, the warden in Shawshank is like that. The evil Wild Bill type guy is like that. The the The, the mean prison guard is like that. 
he just Stephen King only has one kind of bad person. I don't know. There's there's not really any famous stories of him being bullied. I don't think, but you'd, you'd expect there to be like a classic, like he hated his tormentors at school kind of thing. Yeah, I mean the kid that can be the cool kid who writes the funny horror stories or the funny parody stories that everybody is like chomping at the bit to buy. That at least that bit of self mythologizing doesn't jive with a kid who's bullied and picked on. And yeah, yeah, I don't know which it is. The only thing I know about that is that he was selling something door to door when he was a kid to make some money, and a woman accosted him at her door and tried to tell him that he was going to hell and give him this kind of Pentecostal religious spiel that really scared him and that made him have a, what would one say, not a good relationship with conservative Christianity, even though he's very sort of like Spielberg or something. He's very pro God, pro positive energy in the universe kind of stuff, but he doesn't want to want there to be a Christian God. And he thinks people that believe in that are stupid. Like Carrie's mom, who didn't tell her that girls have periods. The infamous thing that Christian moms don't tell their daughters. Right. That famous thing that we're, we're so also scared of our bodies and yeah. Yeah. And I think Carrie eventually crucifies her. And at least in the movie, her mom is like, you're a witch. I'm going to stab you to death. And she stabs Carrie a couple of times. And then Carrie sends kitchen utensils at her and nails her to the wall in a pose of the pose of a crucifix. <clears throat> nice. It's really satisfying. Take that, bully mom. Yeah. You just got crucified with a potato peeler. Villain's lair. Oh, look at that. We're in the crawlway of secondary characters. Nice. I don't know that there's much to say, except for I really like the way that Stephen King lends little bits of empathy. And it's just fun when Paul gets all his buddies and they're going on a mission together. Yeah. And yeah. Brutal's such a great character. Delacroix yeah. is such a great character. Wild, Wild Bill. Bill is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's awful. He's awful. But Wild Bill's more like, oh, yeah, I know that kind of awful exists much more than Percy. Yeah. Yeah, the warden, uh, not or is it the warden, the, the guy with the wife with the the brain tumor. Yeah, yep. the way that he's sort of sketched in is really great. The moments, the phone calls with him, and the way he's trying to be professional while his life is while his home life is falling apart is just all. I, I love that about Stephen King. I mean, I, I don't even know what I love, but the way he writes just little bits of relationship like that. Yeah, it just makes you think he's probably a good father and a good friend and a good he's he he knows how a bunch of men would talk around potato salad while planning a little prison. What if he does have friends? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The little main town where he lives. Where does he live? He splits his time between Bangor, where he grew up, and uh, Florida. What do you know about his son? Well, okay, so that's this is these are some black marks on him. So his he's got three children. One of them is Owen, who's gay and writes novels. One of them is his daughter. I forget what her name is, but she's like a lesbian Unitarian minister or something like that. And then, I mean, you have Joe, Joe Joe King, who goes professionally by Joe Hill and is a very good writer in his dad's mold. He wrote, if anybody's seen the trailer for the recent horror movie that came out, The Black Phone with Ethan Oh yeah, Hawk, little boy trapped in a basement by a serial killer. That's who, Joe Hill. That's Joe Hill. Uh, Joe Hill's a good. He, he's just basically his dad point too. I mean, he 
has the same problems and some of the same strengths. Seems like they're a happy family, but the kids all ended up varying levels of perverse. So his wife's a writer too, right? His wife's also a writer. You read any of her stuff? No, it's really hard not to think she just got published because she happens to have that last name King, but yeah, maybe that's not fair. I don't know. Probably. Hey, it's the roadster (laughs) ushering us into twists and turns. I listened to a little bit to some kind of like book signing Q and a thing that amazing. Brandon just pulled up a picture of Stephen and Tabitha. There are such a dorky. He is a hulking big, tall dude. And they are really, his wife is very homey and homely. They, they just really do look like main caricatures, like American Gothic, like sitting on a porch, smoking long hundreds long cigarettes and stuff like that drinking beer like he just he just has that energy but anyway i'm sorry jake what were you saying it was just like a q a kind of <clears throat> book tour kind of thing with him and one of his sons who had just finished writing a book of some kind but yeah probably him and owen because i think they wrote a book together not too terribly long ago okay i don't remember because i ended up turning it off because it really was just like I mean, it was sweet in its own way. It was like he was lending his credibility to his son and his son was taking it sweetly and happy to be sharing the spotlight or having dad give him a little bit of his spotlight. And Yeah, I think what happened is Joe changed his name to Hill because he's he he got one story published as Joe King and then he real and then the byline said Joe is the son of Steve King and he was like, Oh, I don't I can't do this. I I need to know I made it on my own. So he became Joe Hill. People didn't even know he was Joe King for a long time. But now Owen has gone the other direction and much later in his life and career, he's Owen King, co-author with Stephen King, his dad of... Carrie fame. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I took us to Twists and Turns. This book has twists and turns. It's got... I guess we didn't say this book was written as a serial novel. Anyone who read the novel will know this because it's in the introduction. He... Yeah, and the, he opens up with that letter to the reader. He yeah he he released this in six I think sections. It's interesting that in the novel form he still at the beginning of each chunk repeats like he'll do a previously on kind of thing where he he actually literally copies and copies and pastes text from the last chapter, which would have made more sense in the. But it, I don't know. It didn't bother me. It's just the I don't know. This book has twists and turns and stuff. Anybody have anything to say about the twists and turns? Mm-mm. He's good at them. Yeah, I mean, they're a feature, but there's not a whole lot to say other than that he's good at it. Yeah, he's usually pretty bad, actually. I mean, he, Stephen King knows how to keep a story moving and keep you in suspense. He's great at that. He's really bad at plotting. A lot, a lot of times, like, his books go off the rail in the last third with, like, just crazy things happening. It's like... He's more interested in keeping the momentum going and keeping exciting things happening than in developing a coherent story. It seems like the discipline of writing Green Mile the way he did probably helped him. Because if we read almost any other book, we'd have a lot more to say about the plot. Oh, we're in the salon of style. Anything, anyone have anything more to say about the style? It's engaging. Um, it was. It's obviously not someone who, like, style is not. Like, he's not going out to write poetically, right? He's not like Hemingway in that way. 
But he can, like that last sentence that you read. Yeah, but yeah, he can. And also, I think the style that he strives for, he gets. And it's not really easy to write like this. No, it's not. Well, I think one of the best things that you can say for it is that nothing gets in the way of the story he wants to tell. And the story is always front and center. And he pulls it off and in a way that's page turning and enjoyable and is cinematic, gives you stark images and good characters and nice emotional beats. And so anytime an author does that, people can... He's also not doing what we don't like about somebody like J.K. Rowling, which is he's not being lazy. Like there's not a lot of places where you're like, oh, you're just leaning on cliche. Yeah, you're mailing it in. Mailing it in. Like it's all relatively well done even if not all of it yeah he's sings. not yeah the impression that <clears throat> you could easily get about stephen king is that he would be cliched and silly but i don't mm. that's not really the case no he's not i mean he doesn't have any of the sins of a jk rowling i don't think really he, he can be sloppy but usually when he's sloppy it's more with plot or something it's yeah not, but even then it's not like <laughs> he's not like sloppy because he's overriding with purple metaphors and things like that yeah it's not and he's not just being cliched and lazy. I mean, people I just turned to one just a minute ago. Like the wife was leaning out the window to call to them. She was like a conductor on a train or something. I mean, that's not a bad. Yeah, it just it image. makes you it, it puts just, you there. It stays out of yeah. the way. It makes you see what. You want so to I don't see. know. I, I the, the reading him again. I just don't really understand. I'm still. I meant to look that up. I was trying to find it. Like what was Harold Bloom's beef? Yeah, he just said he was a bad writer. I mean, he just didn't but like why? the style. What reason? I don't know, because he's a snob. I know that I found an article about Stephen he's King. He's got to come up with justifications about, besides the principle <laughs> yeah. that Stephen King is Stephen King. Apparently Stephen King wasn't too probably, wasn't too bothered by Harold Bloom. He was bothered by other critics of him. Right. Okay, let's see. Harold Bloom declared, this is, I remember the sentence, he declared King an immensely inadequate writer on a sentence-by-sentence, paragraph-by-paragraph, book-by-book basis. Whatever that means. I mean, I, I I really, if if your criticism of Stephen King is that his sentences are bad, I really think you just haven't even bothered to read him because yeah. he's not a bad writer. No. I mean, that's the thing that I I just like. I just think, I, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you or can I s- thought, uh, uh, let me step back. Maybe there are other novels that you can read where you can come away feeling like or thinking this is a bad writer, but The Green Mile is not one of them. Well, he's not afraid to lean on things like italics, like exclamation points, like bad language. Like he is a populist and he is a vulgarian. Yeah, the the one place that I would say if we're going to talk about the the degree of vul- vulgarity is over the top. And if there's anything in his sort of style uh, that takes you out of the book, it's like people actually aren't this crass and vulgar when they talk. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, well, I think that's actually connected to what I was trying to Especially say. Especially not about, in the 1930s. Yeah. His, the, the degree of gross sexuality in his books, I think it's actually connected. It's, it's all the same thing. He has a desire to be vulgar, a need to be vulgar that, is weird. I don't. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know exactly yeah. what it is. It's not just he's a good old boy from Maine who talks like that. Because as you said, nobody talks like nobody that. talks like this. I mean, I've been a 
janitor. I mean, I've worked a blue collar jobs where the F word is every other word, but it's not this poetic. It's not this focused. It's not this blasphemous, blasphemous. It's not as sort of laser focused on bodily functions and on perverse sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in factories and I've worked construction and there are people you meet individuals who are like that, I guess, who are. Yeah, but it's everybody in Kate. Yeah. In, this book, except for John Coffey. Right. And then including the heroes, like you could understand Wild Bill talking like that, but. Right. And part of it masquerades as kind of like, I'm just going to tell it like it is. If we're going to the bathroom, I'm going to talk about going to the bathroom. If we're having sex, I'm going to talk about having sex. If we're, there's that. But Stephen King, I think crosses, A, I think very few people can actually do that well if, if it's even something to be done well. B, I don't think that's actually Stephen King. I think he crosses the line into I'd really like to talk about going to the bathroom. I'd really like to talk about sexual functions. And mm-hmm. I mean, again, it is so connected to what makes him great. It's like, it's why I wanted to linger so much on that Carrie scene or a good example of it in this book. It's not a bad scene, but it's just so big. And the effect it goes for is the guy who the lawyer that he goes to visit, who has the son who's been mauled by the dog. And it's like, we're going to really live with this kid's face being desecrated by this dog and what this kid's life is going to be like. And it's kind of brilliant. I mean, I think that might've actually been a part that got tears out of me. Like just this little vignette that has nothing to do with the rest of the book. It's just meant as an illustration for where Paul's at with John Coffey, but it goes so much farther and harder than you expect it to in terms of like, this was how his face was messed up and this was how people are going to bully him. And and he'll I think never that, be married. Right. Have. Yeah. He'll, he'll get these whores will be his way of having sex or, or porn, or I don't remember what it says, but it has like, here's how we're going to imagine what this kid's sex is going to be like. And that is so much of what makes Stephen King great. What makes him effective, what makes him potent. And it's just part and parcel with what, what can make him perverse in his wor- worst moments and what can just make him kind of vulgar and tawdry in his, in his best moments. Like, it's why it was so hard for me to find a Stephen King book for us to read because you want to find one that doesn't have too much of that stuff. And there are some of them, but you also want to read one that's fairly well known and iconic. So the Green Mile kind of split that difference and hopefully it wasn't too offensive to those who read along with us. I don't think it probably was, but yeah, it is too bad that it's as vulgar as it is because it's like you said, it's not actually reflecting how people in the 1930s would have talked Mm -hmm. i don't think so i mean that is one of the reasons why kids love his stuff because they feel like ooh, so that's how adults talk right then you get to be adult and adult and you realize oh wait a second actually most people don't talk like that Mm -hmm. even on the east coast even in maine even in kc affley goodwill hunting maine i I don't connecticut whatever i don't think uh you found your bloom? No, I just found someone else writing about Stephen King. I was hoping he was going to go somewhere else, but he didn't. He didn't. Well, I'm just saying that why would you read Stephen King if you've got real literature that's supposed to show you about life? Elevate you. Elevate and not you. just be an escape. This is a guy who seems to be really bitter about the fact that the New Yorker keeps championing Stephen King. Apparently has published some Stephen King stories. And, and rejected how many of his? Well, I don't know. I've never even heard of the guy. His name is Dwight what? Allen. Ah, Dwight Allen. Good old Dwight Allen. Do you know who Dwight Allen is? Rejected New Yorker writer. Let's see. Dwight 
I'll tell you, he was a professor of education, an eminent scholar, and lifelong education reformist. Is he dead? Yeah, he just died in 21. Stanford man. Yeah, of course he was. Of course he was? What is that supposed to mean, Brandon? I don't know. Got something against Stanford? Brandon's always been more of a Harvard man, I think. No, just he's one of those. That's why he changed his name to Branford. Mm -hmm. Branford. Hmm. He was the author of nine books on education, including one book co-authored with former student Bill Cosby. Well, okay. I can see why he has a chip on his shoulder. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just played the music for Haven of Reflection on Deeper Meaning. I don't I don't know that there's much deeper meaning that we need to talk about in this book. Maybe this is not the same Dwight Allen. Death is coming for you. You will die. You're gonna die. Yep. Everyone's going to die. Yes. Every time you drive past a nursing home, you should think about people shut up waiting to die. I mean, I love how much he puts you in touch with that, though. Me it's, too. It's really great. I mean... I just put my... This is, there's a different Dwight Allen, sorry. This is the guy. He went to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop in 77. And doesn't look like there's much more about him than that. Sorry. We put my grandma in a nursing home. Just recently, went and got her out within a week, but put her in a nursing home recently. And I was grateful to have recently read this book. Yeah. Well, yeah. and even even as much as we don't love the over-the-top chip on its shoulder of Brad Dolan, uh, it's kind of nice to be reminded that there's Brad Dolans that find your find their way to that kind of Places work. Places where they can be cruel to people just who like, have no voice. Yeah, just like Percy's find their way to prisons. Yep. He used to be a fact checker <laughs> for The New Yorker, but has never been published in The New Yorker. Hey, there you go. It actually said that. No, it didn't say that, but it listed the places he had been published, and the New Yorker was uh, not on there. Well, so that's that is why he's bitter. More like fright, Alan. Um, Sorry, yeah. The the bigger meaning of this book, death. Uh, we all got. Good. We yeah. all owe a life to the green. Mind. But it was a, really enigmatic, and you had to really do some work to figure out what he was trying to say and what the theme of the book was. I I felt like he, it, you know, if I have any criticism of Stephen King, it's that he really does. Again, it's it's sort of two sides of the same coin. It's what makes him great and it's what makes him a little lame is he really wants you to know what the theme of his book is. <laughs> this is the point. Yeah. We each owe a death. Right. <laughs> there are no exceptions. <laughs> Expect, yeah, exceptions. <clears throat> I, I don't mind it, especially in a ultra-populist type of a right. Yeah, like I mean, it's, he's appealing yeah. to, the, to maximum number of people. It's artfully done enough that I don't feel bad about it and I don't feel hack. I feel like it's a good country song. I feel like it's a good pop song in that way where it's like, I've got a point. It's on the nose in and of itself, but I'm going to give it to you in a pretty, pretty artfully done way. Subtlety is not my game. Mm -hmm. Never said it was, never tried to be, but I got the tear out yep. of you and by the end of the country song or by the end of whatever. And you didn't feel used or manipulated in the process. Mm -hmm. You felt it was fair. And that's how I felt about this book. Yeah. That's, like, again, that's why I started with the carry scene. Cause it's like subtle. It ain't, but does it tell the story and give you a hook and a window into the world? And like, is it effective? Yes. And is, is it unafraid to, to, to look at, the, at things that matter too, which is another thing that like, you know, the kind of, there are any number of artists who are subtle in their artistry. And if they have something to say, it's not about anything that actually matters. It's just like, why? We're going to be talking about one of those 
next year. Yeah. Uh, who, who are you thinking Dennis of? Dennis Johnson. De- yeah. 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 Very different kind of rider. He's got mm. more to say than Cormac McCarthy. He's <clears throat> who I was thinking of. That's who I thought you were going to say. No. Uh, yeah. Dennis Johnson has more to say, I think. He just says it more lyrically than Stephen King. Right. Yes. Dennis Johnson's a genius. Um, I mean, there are writers who like who are concerned about the way their sentences sound as mm-hmm. well as the story they're telling. Stephen King's not that, not always that kind of writer. Yeah, uh, not yeah. every single sentence is carefully crafted. No, but he doesn't make terrible <clears throat> mistakes. He stays out of the way. I think yeah. better than almost any populist writer I could name. No, yeah. And when he wants to achieve an effect, boy, can he do it. But I think that's what most people who complain about Stephen King, that's what they're complaining about. Yeah. Is that he doesn't care about the things they care about. Yeah, but the catch-22 is, would he be Stephen, I mean, would he would he be popular if he cared about the things that they care about? And I think, yeah. no, no, I think he, he has to. Which means that he matters more than they do mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, I like Dennis Johnson better, but Stephen King matters a whole lot more than Stephen Dennis King Johnson matters a lot will. more because Stephen King has done more to shape how people think, shape how they think about death, shape how they think about all kinds of things, being an outsider or an outcast. outcast. Oh, yeah. He has done more to shape the, popular, the, the thinking of the common man of the last 50 years than... Just about any writer. Just you can about any, li- any living writer, and that... It doesn't matter if it's Dennis Johnson or Cormac McCarthy or whoever it is. He is a shaper and an influencer who has had an impact that a lot of more sophisticated people can't touch. And there's an art to that. And that art is important and it matters. And if you have to be able to look at these sorts of things and take a a step back, like what is the point? What is, is the point to be recognized by critics and scholars? Is the point to be some kind of to live up to some kind of modernist ideal of the genius transcendent artist? Or is it to entertain people? Or is it to tell a story? Is it to have a message? Is it to get get a point across? Is it like what is what is the point? What's your goal? What are you aiming at? And you have to be, if you're gonna it's just if you're gonna reach the common man, you have to be willing to stoop down to, to 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 everyone, no matter where they're coming from, to condescend in a good way and without being condescending or feeling condescending. And that's the kind of thing that any really great popular level artist is able to do, whether it's Spielberg or King or any number of people, brilliant guys who have found a way to connect with everybody. That's what Shakespeare did. Totally. That's what Tolstoy did. Although the problem with Tolstoy is going to be 850 pages Mm -hmm. being its own kind of barrier. But still, anybody could actually pick up Tolstoy and enjoy him. Tolstoy doesn't actually make you read between the lines. He tells you exactly what his themes are and what he's talking about and what he thinks about the characters and the situations. Like Tolstoy is actually pretty upfront about everything he's doing in in, in the way that a great populist is. You don't have to like... Be like, I wonder whether he thought what Anna did was right. Well, let's see. What is, what's that li- little line he put before you ever start the book? Vengeance is Vengeance mine. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty sure. He meant the happy. But life. also, you don't have to wonder. I wonder if he thought that society treated her right. Again, no. I mean, he's he has complex thoughts about it, but he's they're just all clear there and clearly yeah. defined and 
Yeah. Spelled out for you, basically, but spelled out artfully. Um, anything else to say about the Green Mile, Brandon? No. How many prison cells out of 14 do you give to Green Mile? 14. Ah, wow. Perfect book. Brandon's favorite book we've ever done. Jake, same question. Prison cells out of 14? Mm-hmm. 14. All right. Yeah, I give zero. This is trash. There we go. And no Christian should read it. I'm ashamed if you've listened this far. <laughs> ashamed of you. You're ashamed of me? No. Yeah, well, yeah, Brandon specifically. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Patrons, if you want to become a patron of The Bookening, you go to patreon.com forward slash The Bookening. Sign up for any amount. $50 a month lets you read along with us. They're a very popular program where we send you books and you read them and we sign them. You can also sign up for $10 a month to get a donor shout out, which is what we will be doing now. Uh, Brandon, what, do you think this person should be eaten by Pennywise the Clown or not? That is the question. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Yeah, they should. Yeah, in your face. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Jake, same question. Artful Anthony Dodger and no. Bootstrap Betsy. Little Anthony Cigar Store? Yeah. Mortal Chelsea E? No. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley? Uh-huh. Lily of the Valley? Nope. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds? Yeah. The Keith Master? No. John Jill and Little Baby Max? Oh, of course. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis and cold and toy have faces? I was going to say no, except for that last part makes me say, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks, Brandon. <laughs> Council Prime Adam? <laughs> no. Nathan, not me? Yeah, you better believe it. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice? No. DJ Sammy G? Of course. Benny and Danny Tiberius? No. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks? Yeah, I hope it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Professor and Lady X? No. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan? Yes. Noah Constrictor? No. Marichip. Yeah. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. No. Anthony who is cold and hates life, liberty, the pursuit of cheese, and brick red. Yes. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. No. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Oh, yeah. Return of the Jedediah. No. Jay of Rack and Ruin. You better believe it. Timothy the Rider at Dawn. No. Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm and love bees. Get them, Pennywise. <laughs> Matty Matty Matman. No. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Yep. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. Laura, no. the Keeper of Eternal Life. Cold Steel Cody. Uh-huh. Jack of the Librarian Barbarian. No. I'm a Bella to Bond Diggity, Captain Daniel's mate. Yep. Saxophone Alex. No. Other saxophone Alex and Dubstep Dammy. Oh, yeah. Ryan the Terror of Texas and Erica of the Cream and Crimson, who are no longer stuck in the cold, please send cheese. No. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Yes. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. No. Matthew the Mind Flayer. Yes. And Ariel K. Gun. No. Flight of the Valerie. Yes. Thor Ragni Josh. No. Steven Dot Dot Dot. Yes. Pegalodon. No. Christopher the Flower Hole. Yes. Lady of the Crystal Lake. No. Ian the Death of Marion, Lord yes. of Death. Emily Nightshade, no. the Hunter of Dreams, all about yes. the Benjamin Mysterious Phantom. No. Jeremy the Dark, the yes. Lord of Death, and his brooding yes. bride. My yes. My yes. Yes. My yes. 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 We forgot to shout. We said I said Maya last time, but we forgot to do that. Oof. Remains of the J. No. Abram the Polar of Teeth. Yes. La Morte Trenton. No. <laughs> the death <laughs> the death of Trenton. Uh. <laughs> Daniel Man Among Men and Jed who strikes again every now and then. Yes. That's it. Huh. Huh. All right. Goodbye. Kingies. Goodbye. Constant listener. Because Stephen King says constant reader. Do it. It 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 it. it. <laughs> Do it. There you go.